The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, anthropology, archaeology, and other things that end in mology. A little later, we'll talk with Christina Kilgrove, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of West Florida and Science Communicator, about the public perception of anthropology and archaeology fields. But first, let's take a look at some of the forgotten women of anthropology and archaeology, and an organization that's trying to shine a brighter light on them. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Rebecca Reg Sykes, an archaeologist and writer. She co-founded Trailblazers in 2013 and has managed their biggest project to date, the Raising Horizons exhibition, now touring the UK. Her first book, all about Neanderthals beyond cliches of ice ages and extinction, is due out next year. Rebecca, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, thank you for having me. So first, what is Trowelblazers? <laughs> well, it's something that you quite often need to spell out. <laughs> um, people struggle with uh, with the word. It's trowel, as in the thing that you use to dig, um, blazers. And it's uh, essentially uh, the brainchild of... Uh, the name is the brainchild of one of our co-founders, Tori Herridge, as a, as a pun, basically. We're interested in people who blazed trails with their trowels. Um, so that's uh, women who worked in and work in archaeology and the earth sciences. So that's geology and also paleontology. Um, we are a group of um, four of us who actually founded it and essentially run the show. And then we sort of span out into tendrils across the world of, of a very large community of people who are interested in, in activism to highlight the role past and present of women in these fields. So tell me the origin story of Travel Blazers. How did you guys get together and come up with the idea to start this group? <laughs> okay, it's it's kind of a bit 21st century. Um, the story is... We were on Twitter <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of people on there, there's actually a really big archaeology community on there. Um, people always talking about their work, research, issues around archaeology and things like that. Um, and you sort of have little links in with other communities. So and there was a, a conversation happening some time ago, and I think late 2012, um, about sort of the lack of um, websites and, and sort of overt promotion of women's roles in archaeology um, and things like that. And there was some chat and somebody basically said, well, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you start a Tumblr or something like that? Um, and the four of us were part of the conversation and sort of just said, um, all right, let's let's go for it. Let's do something. So we started initially with the Tumblr um, and moved on. Uh, eventually to, to where we are now with uh, a, a website, multiple collaborations that we've um, that we've worked on and, and projects going on in the future. But it has it has its humble origins um, in, in bantering um, and complaining. <laughs> and then we tried to do something positive. So that's kind of where we started. Um, the four of us. Um, there's myself, I'm a, a prehistoric archaeologist, uh, Brenna Hassett, who is a bioarchaeologist, so she specialises in the study of uh, ancient people through bones, um, Suzanne Pillar-Birch, who is a zoo archaeologist, so that means she studies ancient people through their use of animals, and Tori Herridge, who is a paleobiologist, and she specialises in um, particularly in looking at dwarf mammoths, but generally in sort of extinct animals and, and issues about biology and, and diversity and things like that. 
So how long have women been a force in archaeology? Is it has it been mostly a boys club for a long time and it's only recently that women are really starting to get into it? It hasn't it hasn't. Um in terms of how you would sort of see it if you read a lot of history books, you would think that um the main the, the key players were mostly men um from the very start. And in some ways that's true in that the men who gained a name for themselves and were celebrated in the early days often were um, were not women. But um, part of what we've been trying to do, with, with when we first started our Tumblr, our idea was to basically write um, mini biographies of women who've worked in these fields um, and have like cool photos of them and create an archive basically. Um, and the more we the more we researched and the more we did this, you know, based on huge amounts of uh, historical research that other people have done, we sort of looked at this picture overall. And it just became obvious that there were some um, women who sort of individually were isolated, celebrated cases in the early days. But actually, there was like a whole horde of women working away quietly around around them at the same time, who just, you know, have not really made it into the history books, although they actually were there. Um, and so from that sense, even in the early days, women were, were doing all this stuff. So you could take um, not only archaeology, but you can take, uh, for example, Mary Anning. Mary Anning uh, was a woman from the 19th century, the early 19th century, who actually in sort of modern, I don't know, I suppose the last sort of 10 years or so, she's become a bit better known more widely in culture as somebody who was a fossil collector um, and someone whose whose contributions should be celebrated. She found some of the first specimens of, of major uh, species, for example, um, pterosaurs or ichthyosaurs and pterosaurs and things like this, um, uh, plesiosaurs. But she is often portrayed as, as just a fossil collector, so a woman who was uh, living in Lyme Regis, who found stuff on the beach and then sold her finds to learned men of the day. Uh, we're talking sort of uh, early to mid 1800s. Um, and that's it. But actually, if you investigate her story a bit more, she was interested in the biology of these animals. She did read scientific papers. Um, apparently, she even copied some out by hand. She performed dissections on um, excellent creatures to try and understand what it was that she was finding in the fossils. She also was one of the first people to understand what coprolites were. Coprolites are the fossilized um, remains of animal dung, basically. And, um, and also she understood what uh, some of the stones were inside the stomachs of the creatures that she was finding, that they were stones that they had eaten uh, to help digest their food. So she, she's so much more than a fossil collector. Um, so in that sense, even the women that, that are sort of roughly known um, today, there's more to them as well um, than, than, you, than you often hear about. This is interesting to me because as we sort of go forward, we're finding more and more about how a lot of the science of the past was more done by women than I think we've previously given it credit to. I'm also thinking of a lot of the, the books and information that have come out about Bletchley Park and all the women that were involved in the code breaking work that was done there. I'm also thinking of um, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. There were so many women involved in doing all of the calculations work before computers, before what we see is computers. Computers 
tended to be women doing a lot of really complex, yeah. difficult math in order to make those rockets work. And that's information that has been sidelined for a really long time, sort of downgraded as support work. We don't really hear about it. And I love that now we're starting to hear more about um, and re sort of hearing more about it and recentering some of the female work that's gone into these great scientific endeavors and this great research that's happened in our past. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, there's a there's a comparable phenomenon, if you will, across loads of different scientific disciplines um, and also probably in the arts as well. Um, I think social sort of context at the time um, meant that some women were just not uh, sort of openly talked about or celebrated so they didn't really make it into the history books in the same way um or they pursued a career early and then and then didn't continue it things like this but even beyond that there, there really is just huge amounts of women i mean we've um our current website uh trailblazers.com has more than 170 biographies of uh, women across these disciplines um we about 50% of those are actually sent in by the community who's involved with us. It's crowdsourced, essentially, uh, which is brilliant. And um, people are really into these stories um, and anybody can submit uh, to us through our website. Um, but we've only been going properly for three years. And, you know, that's a huge amount of people. We've got an enormous database of other names that have yet to to be um, added to the website that have yet to have biographies submitted to us. Um, and, you know, we know that that's just the tip of the iceberg as well. There's, there's, there's just a huge, huge, huge story of women contributing right from the start that's, that's not there. Um, and also the other thing that's interesting is I think some people, some of the perceptions of some of the early women are that they were sort of quiet characters. And I think in some ways that might be true. For example, one of the the first archaeology lecturer in the UK um, was Margaret Murray. Um, she was an Egyptologist um, and she came to archaeology quite late in life, but she qualified and uh, went on some major digs at the very end of the 19th century. This was, you know, just as education was really starting to go with universities, she was involved right from the beginning and she was lecturing and training people. And yet you sort of get the impression in some histories that she's included as sort of an afterthought or oh, it's that funny little woman who did her thing as if she's not as important a figure in terms of training and mentoring and creating the discipline as some of her male contemporaries. Um, and there is, there's just so many other examples like that um, that you can, that you can discuss. And that actually is, is one of the other things that we've come across that's really interesting is that you do read about individual women who are very famous, for example, a prehistoric archaeologist, Dorothy Garrett, who was um, the first female professor at Oxford, who had a lot of firsts to her name. She's well known. But the other thing, people have this picture that women like her were sort of isolated anomalies and, you know, they just sort of struggled on despite everything and, you know, they were just alone. That's really totally not the case. Um, women like Dorothy Garrett had enormous networks. Um, they had networks of people that they collaborated with, that they did research with, that they dug with. But then you can also trace networks going both ways of the people who trained them who often women are involved there 
um, and the people who they trained. So you end up with these enormous, we've, we've had a go at drawing some of them, um, fantastic networks that link women in these, in these three different ways, training, collaboration and also mentoring just being there as, as a visible woman that somebody was able to you know talk to and see um and even that lifelong friendships evolved among some of these women dorothy garrett and gertrude caton thompson for example who's another archaeologist very famous one herself she trained kathleen kenyon on uh, kathleen kenyon's first excavation was with gertrude caton thompson on the site great zimbabwe in what was then uh, Rhodesia, um, she, Kate and Thompson was brought in to establish whether the uh, the culture who created this incredible medieval giant stonewalled city was actually a native culture or not, which it turned out it was. Um, and she brought with her to do this work two young women, one of whom was Kathleen Kenyon, who then went on eventually to co-found the Institute of Archaeology in London. So there's just these generations and generations of, of women. And one of the people who uh, who co-trained Gertrude Caton Thompson was Hilda Petrie, the wife of Flinders Petrie and Margaret Murray. And they were all colleagues and they all dug together in Egypt earlier in the 20th century. So there's just like everywhere you look, there are these massive networks and connections um, between women across the generations. And the idea that, that at the very beginning of these disciplines, uh, there were sort of just, you know, one or two strange women out there doing their strange thing in the desert. No way. People were out there on collaborative excavations from the start. It's great to hear that women have been working together in these kinds of ways, in these kinds of groups, uh, in this kind of science work for a really long time, because the image is of the sort of single pioneer woman who's facing really hard odds every day and doesn't sort of is a lonely figure. And it's really great to think that some of those figures we have thought of as lonely had a really strong supportive community that they that could help them out and that could work they could work with. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's not to downplay the the challenge that that these women faced for example to go back to Dorothy Garrett she she was the the first women professor at Oxford but she was totally alone she was only um employed after a, a long period of actually working there unofficially when um, they just changed the rules and effectively they had to employ, employ her officially as a man on the paperwork. Oh, wow. um, and then she sort of, you, you get the impression from reading about biographies of her and, and sort of comments from her and things that she had a really hard time in, you know, an extremely male dominated environment in uh, in the sort of the hierarchical organization of Oxbridge. Um, this was, you know, around the time when, when the colleges first started to admit women, there were riots and things with male students go, you know, destroying property and things like this. And to be a woman alone in that department teaching students, you know, I can't imagine how intimidating that must have been. Um, and there are women all, all over who had situations similar to that. But I think the power of having an experience relatively early on in your career where you worked with another woman, you were mentored by somebody, I think was really important. Um, there's just so many other examples. There's another woman who sort of has a, a famous male who overshadows her in the same way that Hilda Petrie is is overshadowed um, by her husband, Sir Flinders Petrie, who is just a world-famous Egyptologist. He has the Petrie Museum named after him in London. Another woman who sort of was in that situation was called Tessa Verney Wheeler, and her husband 
was Sir Mortimer Wheeler, um, who was an extremely eminent archaeologist at the very beginning of when archaeology was becoming established as a professional career. And they actually worked as a team for a long time, um, running different excavations. They both lectured at UCL in the early days, but Tessa was more of a field archaeologist. She ran their field excavations, some of which were training grounds for the next generation. And it was her influence as a woman running a site, a major site, um, running the entire operation while Mortimer might be away doing thing, other things, teaching. Um, they were also doing science communication. It was usually him in front of the camera while she was doing the work, um, actually running the sites. And for the students who, who worked on their sites, seeing her just getting on with it, doing the archaeology, running everything, no big fuss, was very important, I think. Um, and she trained people, including uh, uh, Kenyan, including um, Mary Leakey, dug on her sites. Mary Leakey is hugely famous. Some of your listeners have probably heard of um, the Leakey family. Um, they've been working on human origins research in various countries in Africa for decades. Mary Leakey uh, found the oldest human footprints in the world at Lytoli. They're over three million years old. She was first trained by two women, um, one of whom was Tessa Bernie Wheeler. And I think there's, it's no coincidence that some of the, the key women who went on to major careers had this experience of early training and being seen um, and, and seeing somebody sort of at the centre of things, running things. So I think that's a really important factor um, in in the fact that there wasn't sort of an isolation for everybody. Um, and not only that, but people, when they went on, when they, when they established themselves in their careers, you would also see really strong collaborations directly between people. So, for example... Um, to go back to Gertrude Caton Thompson, she dug uh, with the peat trees in Egypt in the early days while she was training. Margaret Murray was there too. They were all digging together and on and different sites on the same field project. Later on, she went on to do her own research in Egypt and she was a real pioneer. She was probably one of the finest field archaeologists of her generation, women or men. Um, she was extremely methodical, very careful, very concerned with what we call stratigraphy, which is basically the order that deposits are found in when you dig a site. And in order to understand your archaeology in the site, you've got to know how your site formed. It's crucial. And she was very careful. She tried to dig sites um, in, in sequence, digging things carefully. And she also collaborated with Eleanor Gardner, who was... Um, a, uh, a geologist and geographer to do some of the first multidisciplinary landscape research projects. And this was going on in the, the 20s, in, in the 30s um, in Egypt. They were working together. And, you know, these, these really are foundational figures for how archaeology developed as a field. But you don't hear quite the same about them as you do in sort of history books about the discipline as you do about men who sort of created, you know, new ways of doing archaeology and things. Um, and another example of, of that is sort of this, this tension between women who happen to work with their partners or their spouses. A fantastic example is uh, the story of the Binfords, um, Lewis and Sally Binford. Um, they were archaeologists, uh, American archaeologists, um, who were working during the 60s. And Sally Binford is just beyond fascinating as a person. Um, she was twice uh, divorced when she met Lewis Binford, um, and she was doing her PhD at the time in anthropology. 
she had joined one of the American anthropology departments and, and was already finding it sort of rife with sexism and, and anti-Semitism and, and sort of all sort of really difficult context to work in. And then uh, met Lewis, who was slightly younger than her. And they began to work together on ways to understand uh, early prehistoric archaeology in Europe, essentially Neanderthal archaeology. Um, and Sally had already had years of work off her own back doing research um, in France and in the Near East on sites. And Lewis Binford, some people would um, sort of debate whether or not he was uh, visionary in some ways, but he was one of um, the people during the 60s who was very focused on uh, bringing a, a new scientific methodological approach to, to how people did archaeology. And they together attempted to um, take a statistical view of the basically the proportions of stone tools in caves from France to try and understand why there's different patterning in those stone tools and what Neanderthals were doing. If you look at history books now about archaeology and the development of theories and methods in archaeology, you'll see everything to do with the Bords, who was a French archaeologist, versus the Binford debate. It should be Binford's plural, and it almost never is. She was crucial to that work because it was her data that they used. It was her who co-wrote um, several papers. And yet, even now, although people do know that it was both of them, he still overshadows her. Um, and that's something that, that still goes on today. And so I think there's there's so many different angles to the to the reasons why we may not have a a real picture of exactly how many women were active in these fields from how early and what they were doing the raising horizons projects uh, project one of the things i really love about this project is how it unites present and past we take um, people who are working in various fields in archaeology who are doing some amazing work in the present, and you have united them with a, a version of what they might have been in the past through some of the um, historic people who have helped advance the area. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you made these connections and some of the present scientists that got involved in, in posing as the, the scientists of the past? Yeah, sure. Um, that's that's one of the most fun things about about doing that project. Um, when we were contacted by Lenora, she she had had this idea for a couple of years to kind of have historic women and and pose as modern women, but but she you know she doesn't know um, the community, she doesn't know the history, so so that was sort of our our thing to to develop this idea and actually go and find a range of women from different disciplines, different periods, um, and, and sort of then connect them with, with modern counterparts. And it was so much fun. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have to say at the start, we could have had so many more, so many more women. We only have 14, um, but we could have had so many more. Um, and, I, you know, it was really hard choosing people. Um, but uh, some of, I guess, yeah, there's just so many fun ones. Um, so we have a lot of the women I've been talking about are in this. Um, we have uh, Tessa Verney Wheeler, um, the, the woman who was a lecturer in archaeology at UCL in uh, the 1930s and who was also this incredible field archaeologist um, who trained generations. Um, her modern counterpart um, is Jessica Bryan, who is a field archaeologist who works for the uh, effectively the the archaeological field unit side of the museum of london um 
And so there's a link there because uh, the Wheelers used to work for the Museum of London back in the day. Um, they're all sort of, you know, familiar with the same areas. And um, Jess has, has got a long history of, of uh, working in the field and also doing science communication, which is something else that, that the Wheelers did. They were, uh, it, was, it was mostly Mortimer Wheeler who was actually, um, as I said, in front of the, the camera. But um, together they understood the importance of presenting archaeology to the public in a way that was relatable and understandable. Um, and so they were doing that back in the day as well. Um, we have, uh, who else have we got? Um, we have uh, Mary Anning is in the exhibition and that was a really fun portrait to do um, because uh, first of all, there's a very sort of well-known portrait of Mary Anning, which was done in oils uh, towards the end of her life, which is hangs up in the Geological Society in London, which is where we actually had the launch for the exhibition, which was amazing. Um, and she's standing in like a big uh, sort of um, Kremlin dress um, with a bonnet on with the cliffs of Lyme Regis behind her where she did her work, uh, fossil collecting basket. Um, but there is actually a sketch um, done uh, prob very probably of her by her friend uh, Henry de la Beche, who was also a um, geologist who did um, art at the time. Um, and I wanted us to use this because it's much more realistic. That the oil portrait is like her presenting herself to society in her best. But if you look at this little watercolour sketch, she's in much more rough and ready clothes. She's got um, clogs on, you know, everyday shoes that people used to wear equivalent of like trainers you know for going out on the beach um, and she's just busy looking around looking down at, at, at the rocks seeing what she can see and the best thing is and she's not wearing a bonnet she's wearing a top hat um, in this little sketch and it just sort of it's like a fresh view of her as a person and she's she's towards uh, the end of her life in this as well but she kind of just looks she just looks like she knows what she's about in that sketch um, and we thought that would be really nice sort of reimagining of her to base the portrait on so we did that um, and we actually got a real dog in as well to pose <laughs> which was brilliant all the costumes were provided by um uh one of the sort of foremost costume companies that does film and theater and stuff in london so they were really amazing as well the costumes um and the woman who we asked to be mary anning um is dr lorna Steele. And there's lovely connections there as well. She's senior curator um, in Earth Sciences at the Natural History Museum. And she is uh, responsible for fossil collections there, which includes pterosaurs. Um, one of the fossil species that Mary Anning discovered back in the day um, that, you know, is responsible for discovering some of the earliest varieties of are pterosaurs. Um, and um, Lorna Steele did her PhD on microanatomy of pterosaurs as well. So there's these wonderful links. Um, and not only that, but in her in her role at the Natural History Museum um, in uh, in 2008, um, a five year old girl called Daisy Morris found a new pterosaur species. Um, she just discovered it in the UK and it was sort of in the papers and stuff. Um, and she donated it to the Natural History Museum. And it was Laura um, Lorna who, who officially received that fossil from her um, and it was actually named after Daisy Morris eventually um, in 2013 um, so there's another link there um, and it's it's just really lovely sort of that the more you looked into into these different women there actually were lots of nice little sort of serendipitous connections between them um, and some some of the women there were actual sort of research sort of 
genealogies as it were like somebody may have been trained by someone who was trained by someone who was trained by their historic connection things like that so it was it was really lovely and it also was interesting because it made us um think a bit about you know how we how we do archaeology and and our other disciplines um today things that we we focus on um so um Jaquetta Hawkes is another one of the uh historic women and she was an archaeologist uh who was working again sort of like um early mid 20th century and although she did digging um for example she uh was trained by Dorothy Garrod she was the first female student um of Dorothy Garrod at Oxford and she went and dug with her in what was then uh, what's what's Palestine uh, now, and she was on the excavation at Mount Carmel, which found the first ever female Neanderthal discovered outside of Europe. And Jaquetta Hawkes was there, and she was profoundly influenced by this. Um, she she was very into um, sort of literary and artistic sort of interpretations of archaeology and she wrote some amazing books later in her life um and poems and even while she was on this site finding this neanderthal she wrote a poem about it uh, about how it made her feel to sort of connect to this this real bone uh and an ancient body from from so long ago and jaquetta hawks later went on to sort of moved away from field excavations and went more into writing books but also ideas about different ways that you do archaeology so she she was one of the first people to make um tv programs about archaeology which she made for the british government just after the war um they wanted like a something that was you know positive about britain and its history and stuff and so she did this series um for them she then was um a key figure in one of the first ever unesco uh, conferences that was held in Britain um, and she had this sort of cultural archaeological sort of expertise and specialism and I wanted to match her with somebody who pushes sort of at the boundaries of, of what archaeology is about now and so um, I chose Dr Colleen Morgan um, who is an archaeologist uh, she's currently at uh, University of York um, and she's been working for for a long time. Uh, she's an early career uh, researcher. She's been working for a long time already on aspects of digital archaeology. Um, she's she's been running a blog since people basically first started running blogs. Um, she's got a huge archive of her own thoughts about archaeology, um, but also the way that you use different media in archaeology. How does how do we use photography, filming? Um, how do we use uh, other digital things like uh, GPS, which is, um, you know, people know what GPS is, um, but also archaeologically specific ways of, of, of using digital media. Um, and so I thought she was a really interesting modern counterpart. Um, and some of the most fun things that she's done is that she's worked with um, projects at the University of Berkeley previously, because she's, uh, she's from the States, um, on what was the digital recreation of uh, a world-famous Neolithic site called Çatalhöyük from Turkey. Um, it's like one of the first sort of towns, essentially, uh, settlements. Um, and that site's been dug for a long time, and it's been at the cutting edge of, of different methods of, of doing archaeology and ways we think about archaeology. And they decided to recreate this, this site inside Second Life, which is an online um, uh, sort of... I don't know how you would call it, um, like a role-playing 
online world that's that's a vast you know there's just like you can be anything inside this world it's got thousands and thousands and thousands of people that take part in it and they decided to create a virtual world in there reproducing this site so they could so that they could think about what what is fact and what is fiction in archaeology how do we recreate the past um, what does it mean and things like this and she was she was involved in that project um, and since then she's been doing other lots of other really exciting work so that's just another example of of the different ways that we try to think about what the women in the past you know that the greater contributions that they were making to their disciplines overall um, and and how we might sort of see that reflected in in the the contemporary women that we selected if you uh, are lucky enough to be in a place where you can see the exhibit, I do recommend going. Uh, if you can't, or if you are in a place that's unlikely to um, be a stop for the exhibit, do go online and we will link to those in our show notes today so you can have a look at the portraits. Yeah, that, I mean, the portraits, Lenora's work is fantastic. Everybody who's sort of seen them in person always says they look like oil paintings themselves. They're so deep and rich the colors they're beautifully posed they're just really striking and when we had the launch um in february this year at the geological society they were arrayed um on this sort of mezzanine level in, in this very distinguished um library um sort of all spotlit individually and they looked amazing and the most the most fun thing about that was that that room was we had a fantastic launch loads of people came and the room was stuffed with women and, and somebody said afterwards that they've been uh, you know a member of the society for something like 30 years and they have never seen so many women in one room at the same time there and we thought okay yeah we've achieved <laughs> we've achieved something there so that was great rebecca thank you so much for your time today um and for doing such great work with trailblazers and for raising horizons if you want to learn more about Trowel Blazers or the Raising Horizons project, we've got links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. If you live in the UK or are going to be in the UK, the Raising Horizons show is still touring. Check out raisinghorizons.co.uk slash visit to find out when and where you can see the exhibit in 2018. And you can find that link on our website too. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. With me is Christina Kilgrove, an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of West Florida. Her research is in the field of Roman bioarchaeology and using human skeletal remains to understand the lives of the ancient Romans. She is also active in public archaeology and outreach, writing for Forbes, Mental Floss, and her own blog, Powered by Osteons. Christina, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. So I have to ask, what are osteons? Is that like a thing or an anthropology <laughs> joke I'm missing? Right. They're, um, uh, oh my God, I didn't think you were going to ask me this. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Um, uh, there's sort of a, a basic unit of um, bone biology. Um, and uh, I came up with the idea of powered by osteons because when I started my blog, it was called the Bone Girl blog. And I thought, you know, as I was getting a PhD, I didn't really, really want to be called a bone girl anymore. Um, and so I took um, uh, a page from Blogger, which was powered by Blogger. And I figured, you know, this blog is about skeletons and bones. So it's going to be powered by osteons. So when you say that osteons are like a sort of small, what did you say? Like a, a smallest kind of reference for a bone? What, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I am not good at defining terms. <laughs> this is something you will learn about me. Um, it's, it's a unit of bone. Um, it's sort of one of the basic structures of bone. It's a, a, a unit of bone. I don't really know how to describe that very well. Okay, so this isn't like it's a, a part s- of bone. So it's this not isn't a like cell. a cell, but it's like some oh. kind of small structure that it gets repeated to make up a larger bone, I guess? Yes. See, that's a better definition than I would have said. I'm just yes, trying to absolutely. like picture it in my head and I'm sort of thinking like, quote unquote, like a molecule of a bone. Right. No, it's more like sort of concentric circles um, within a bone that are sort of like 3D concentric circles that fit together to make a bone. Would a good analogy be like a tree ring? Um, Sort of. But if you took a whole bunch of trees uh-huh. and mushed them together. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Then each of those trees would be an osteon. Okay. All right. I'm going to have to go away and look this up because I'm really interested in this now. But we can Right. It makes, it makes more sense when you see a diagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this is sometimes the challenge of radio and podcasts is we, we don't have diagrams. I might try and find one for the episode image. <laughs> right. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the difference between archaeology and anthropology? Because we often hear these words used in the same breath, in the same kind of descriptor. I'm not sure a lot of people, including myself, really understand what the difference is. Absolutely. Well, in American anthropology, um, which is where I was trained um, and where I work, American anthropology is actually split into four subfields. And one of those subfields is archaeology. The other subfields are biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, and linguistic anthropology. Um, and so this was a field created by Franz Boas at the turn of the 20th century. And his vision was that anthropology was sort of uh, used these four different subfields together um, and integrated them. Um, and so in American anthropology, archaeology is a part of anthropology. And I know that doesn't necessarily hold in other parts of the world. Um, but archaeology specifically deals with past people, past people's cultures. So these would be people who don't exist anymore specifically. Correct. So what about bioarchaeology? Bioarchaeology is kind of a combination of archaeology and biological anthropology. So as a biological anthropologist, I deal with uh, humans' physical bodies, but I apply that knowledge to understanding the physical bodies of people in the archaeological record, um, people of the past. So I study human skeletal remains to try to find out more about past cultures, about past people's lives. So is it sort of the idea of studying how people died and what remains of them after they died in order to better understand how they lived? Sort of. Um, As bioarchaeologists, we don't usually, we're not usually able to figure out exactly how people died. Um, Most likely, many people died from infections and other sorts of things that we, you know, could cure today. Um, But 
more we're interested in their lives because human bodies change over time. And so if you break your arm, right, you're going to get a healed fracture, ideally, um, if you survive that. Um, and then we'll be able to see evidence of that um, after they're dead. So we really sort of go back through the human body. It's almost like a palimpsest or a time capsule um, to try to understand uh, their lived lives, what they did when they were children, what they did as adults. As someone who works in the field, what are some of the most common misconceptions about what an archaeologist does or doesn't do that tends to be held by the public? Oh, there are so many of them. I mean, the probably the, the biggest misconception is that we're like Indiana Jones, right? Um, that we go and we outrun boulders and, um, uh, you know, we're basically treasure hunters. I mean, as um, misconceptions oh, go, there could uh, be worse ones. It's true. That's true. I mean, we all want to be Harrison Ford. Um, but... Uh, yeah. And, you know, even even in Indiana Jones, he talks about, you know, how you know, the, the things need to be in a museum, but he doesn't deal with context. You know, he's breaking into temples and stealing things and destroying everything that gives us information about the artifact that he's looking at. Um, so that's, you know, the number one misconception is that we're like Indiana Jones. But um, there are other public misconceptions. Uh, some people think that we study dinosaurs, which, of course, we don't. <laughs> we deal with modern human people. Um, some people think that we deal with hominins, that we deal with Homo erectus or Australopithecines, but that's paleoanthropology. Um, and then some people think that we do forensics, um, that we do, you know, contemporary dead people to try to figure out, you know, who killed them and why. Um, and so that's, you know, a different branch of biological anthropology that shares a lot with bioarchaeology, um, but is applied to um, the current medical legal context. So you mentioned the idea of sort of the Harrison Ford like figure mm -hmm. going through, uh, digging stuff up, breaking a lot of stuff, stealing stuff. Uh, that's <laughs> Obviously, not something that archaeologists and anthropologists do now. But I remember reading a, a book about the Egyptian mummies that talked a lot about how much damage had been done to a lot of these um, preserved bodies by the people who were digging them up originally. So was there a time when that was more, a more accurate summary of, of what the job kind of was? Oh, there was absolutely a time when uh, archaeo- well, sort of not real archaeologists um, when they were definitely more treasure hunters. Um, and it was a time, you know, 60, 70, 100 years ago, um, particularly in areas of the world um, affected by colonialism, um, where uh, a number of people would go and just, you know, take artifacts and objects and maybe put them in a museum collection. Um, but divorced from context, it doesn't really tell us that much. So yes, absolutely. You know, 100, 200 years ago, um, antiquities dealing was um, a lot less regulated <laughs> than it is today. When did that start to shift? I mean, obviously, it sounds like there was always at least a group of people who didn't want to do that kind of sort of treasure hunting. But was there a, a broader shift that made that less acceptable and made anthropologists and archaeologists more sort of aware of what they were doing in these kinds of places? That's a very good question that I don't think I have the answer to. Um, there were a number of laws in sort of the middle part of the 20th century, I guess, um, both in the US and uh, in Europe that prevent uh, this sort of antiquities dealing. Um, but I don't have any more sort of specifics about that. I mean, but by that time, archaeology as a discipline was an actual professional discipline and people weren't, you know, stealing artifacts. 
I know that there are a, a lot of tools, especially with some of the new technology that's coming forward, that allow people to start to look at things in a less invasive way, even from a, a distance. Um, I remember reading an article about some new, I think, physics technology that was being used to f- try and find cavities inside the Great Pyramid. Is that correct? That's what I've read, too, yes. <laughs> Is, can you tell us a little bit about that find, or at least how they managed to find some of those voids and what they're using? <laughs> um, sort of. I don't p- sort of personally understand that technology. Um, it sounds very fascinating. Um, as far as I understand, it relates to physics. Um, and this is, this is actually an answer that I give my kids anytime they ask me um, something that I don't know, uh, science related. I'm like, because physics, that's just, that's my answer. <laughs> not because I said so, because I'm not that kind of parent. I'm like, because physics, that's just, that's the answer. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the sort of new technology that's finding these, uh, uh, these voids in the pyramid uh, and a variety of pyramids. Um, it's really, really cool. But as archaeologists, one of our problems with new technology is that we also need to integrate the historical record and the archaeological context and the cultural context. Um, so it's not really, we don't really adopt technology for the sake of technology, which some of these sort of new developments seem to be. Um, rather, we want to embrace technology to better understand the history and the archaeology and the context that's there. So was the use of, of the new technology in this case, which is obviously trying to find voids without breaking through walls, was that mm-hmm. motivated by thinking there must be a void or a cavern that we're missing or that we can't get to? Or was it, let's just throw some muons at it and see what it uncovers? <laughs> Um, I, I, I honestly don't know. I think you'd have to ask them what their motivation is. Um, but I, you know, it, you know, it's important to understand how things were built. It's important to understand how the pyramids were built. Um, because they're really fascinating. Uh, and so throwing this technology at it is good. Um, I just think we, you know, we need to integrate that with all of the other information that we have about the pyramids. And it's not like physics is never wrong. So we don't exactly know <laughs> what we're seeing yet, according to some of the stuff that I've read. Right, right. I do want to talk a little bit about something you wrote for Forbes, which was the idea of us projecting some of our modern ideas and sometimes our modern debates onto things that we find from the past or evidence that comes uh, that surfaces around things we we learn from the past, including uh, some information that we discovered about two of the bodies from uh, what happened in Pompeii. Absolutely. Um, One of the interesting skeletons um, that I actually sort of cut my teeth on blogging, um, as it were, uh, was the so-called gay caveman. Uh, And that was about six years ago, where this third millennium BC person um, from the Czech Republic just got splashed all over news media um, as being gay or transgender. And the news media at the time was really conflating all of these different um, uh, cultural terminology. And it was important because at the time, it uh, sort of coalesced with some of the debates that were happening in the U.S. um, about the Defense of Marriage Act, about don't uh, don't ask, don't tell. Um, And this was, you know, a time before uh, gay marriage was legalized. So there was really sort of a a cultural moment um, that happened back then in like 2011. Um, And, you know, I'd like to say that 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 we have learned <laughs> in the past six years how better to cover 
um, these skeletons that uh, that aren't quite what we would expect, right, from uh, their their burial. But we kind of haven't, um, and that was the the focus of the Forbes post that I wrote. Um, is sort of finding it was almost a clearinghouse post of these different skeletons that seem a bit different based on what the archaeologist expected to find um, and how they've been misinterpreted. And often the way that they're misinterpreted is based on gender lines. Um, so a skeleton that's found with weapons will just be assumed to be male. Um, and then a few years later, an osteologist will look at it and say, wait, that looks female um, based on the osteological markers, or they'll do a DNA analysis and say, hey, wait, those are actually male. And then, you know, what does that mean? Um, so we start ascribing our modern sensibilities onto these skeletons. We see two skeletons that look like they're locked in an embrace. And we say, oh, you know, because of our heteronormative focus, we just assume that they're male and female. And then when they're studied, it turns out they're two males. What does that mean? Um, and so it's sort of a problem of, you know, translating uh, ancient remains into a modern context. Um, and we haven't yet completely figured this out. Um, so I try to raise this uh, in my blog posts um, that we really need to think differently um, about what we're seeing um, in terms of bringing in uh, a feminist perspective in terms of bringing in an LGBTQ perspective. Um, and I, I think that's important. This is sort of the moment in archaeology where we need to start bringing that in. It's interesting because uh, I remember with the skeletons from Pompeii, originally there was some thought that they were both female and the idea that two females were embracing. There was no sort of talk of these must be lesbians. It was just, you know, about to die. Embracing mm -hmm. seems like a good probably thing to do at the time. Uh, but suddenly <laughs> when the gender shift happened, then we get terms like gay that pop out. And maybe they were in some sort of uh, intimate relationship, but we don't necessarily know that they could have been, uh, they could have been really good friends. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we are uh, 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 ascribing our idea of masculinity um, back onto the past, which is um, completely not fair <laughs> in, in Roman society. They could have been lovers. They could have been brothers. They could have been friends. I mean, they could have not known each other whatsoever because it's Pompeii and a volcano is erupting. And, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, maybe you're just grabbing the next person you see. So is this kind of projection of modern sensibilities and modern culture onto the past, usually mostly sort of media and lay people laying on this kind of assumption and an analysis? Or do archaeologists and anthropologists often do this as well? I mean, they're part of the culture. They have these same kinds of biases, I presume. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes archaeological finds are overinterpreted um, by the archaeologists themselves. Um, especially problematic are uh, child deaths um, and dead children, you know, babies in a well. Uh, there have been some uh, uh, sort of infants found in England, I believe, who were uh, called brothel babies. <laughs> they may have been um, from uh, prostitutes uh, uh, in the Roman world um, who, you know, abandoned their babies. And this is again ascribing, you know, modern sensibilities, like why would these infants be abandoned? Um, instead of thinking about, uh, death rates for infants, which were very, very high, um, prior to the modern world. 
So I do also want to talk uh, before we we end about the ways in which archaeology and bioarchaeology are portrayed in the media. Um, in particular, I want to discuss crime proce- procedurals like Bones, because you have a long and storied history of some very excellent reviews of the television show Bones. So just really quickly, for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, can you just give me a quick pitch on what the premise of Bones is? <laughs> Uh, Bones focuses on a forensic anthropologist, um, Temperance Brennan, uh, who's drawn from the uh, novels of Kathy Rikes, who is a forensic anthropologist. Um, and she solves crimes. She solves murders. Are there a bioarchaeologist working in this kind of forensic field and using their expertise to help solve crimes? Is that a fairly accurate uh, job that happens in the real world? Well, both bioarchaeologists and forensic anthropologists are trained in archaeology because we need to be able to recover skeletons. Um, and we're also trained in osteology or what the skeleton can tell you. It's just that bioarchaeologists deal with people who are, you know, like 100 years old and older, and forensic anthropologists deal with the more modern people. Interesting. So very similar, just different time periods, essentially. Right. So overall, in your years of watching and reviewing Bones, do you have some overall thoughts on how your field or the general field gets represented in a television show that's quite popular? Sure. Yeah, it was very popular. I'm actually very sad that it ended, Um, not just because I liked writing reviews, um, but because, I mean, it was on for 12 years. And the main character is a woman. She's a strong woman. She's a smart woman. She's a working woman. She's got one or more PhDs. I don't remember how many PhDs she's supposed to have. And to see this um, on television and to essentially grow up with it. I mean, I I think Bones started uh, when I was in early graduate school. um, And to sort of have that, you know, formed in my mind that this is the kind of thing that I could do um, was really important to me. And I I kind of like to think of Bones, of Temperance Brennan, as almost like Mary Tyler Moore, right? Sort of from the previous generation, that show was on in the early 70s, around the time I was born, and really influenced a lot of, of women at the time with the you know, feminist movement um, to see that you know, they could have this strong working woman on TV. Um, so for me, that was, that was Tempe Brennan. Um, that was Bones. And you know, my, my reviews talk about uh, all of the problems with it, you know, like this could never happen, or this is ridiculous the way that she figures out the age of death and sex of the skeleton. But I mean, in reality, I was watching the show because like, I like the show. <laughs> um, I thought it was a great procedural. Um, and I really liked it a lot. I think sometimes in those kinds of situations, it's wonderful to have something to pick apart because the alternative is to not see your interests or your profession or yourself represented in media at all. Absolutely. And uh, one time I actually uh, complained about uh, the layout of some of the bones and I got an email from the bones prop master Mm. (laughs) who said, oh, what am I, you know, what are we doing wrong? What can we do better? And so, you know, we had a sort of back and forth um, and then it was never fixed on the show. So I was a little disappointed. (laughs) Still, I guess a, uh, you were thrown a bone, not to crack the joke, but... So I'm also interested in your experiences of uh, working in the field, both before and after becoming a mother. Uh, Recently on your blog, you've been posting about, I think it was your first foray back into the field uh, where you brought your your family along with you. (laughs) I did this past summer. Um, I brought my kids who were um, eight and three at the time um, to Naples with me uh, to, yeah, be in the field with me. (laughs) How did that go? 
Yeah, that um, it went it went fine. Um, the girls had never been on uh, that long a trip, so they did not deal well with jet lag um, at all. And uh, even though we uh, had hired a bilingual nanny to you know take care of them while I was working and my husband was working, um, they definitely missed interacting with people of their own age um, in English. So it all went well, and they seemed to enjoy it. They really liked the food, the gelato, the pizza, of course. <laughs> what kid wouldn't. Um, but they definitely had some, you know, cultural issues and missed home a lot. <laughs> is this uh, something in your field that is talked about or that people are trying to do? Because there is definitely a, a large amount of field work that's quite often involved in archaeology and anthropology, which I can understand would be very difficult once you have kids in a family. Right. It absolutely is difficult. And yeah, this is this is starting to be talked about um, a whole lot more. I know lots of people who have brought their kids um, into the field. Um, and it's much more common now um, than it has been in the past. Uh, so I mean, I was I was very lucky that I was able to do that this summer, um, because my husband works remotely for his job, so he can do his job from anywhere. Um, it was possible to to bring them with me. But I know not everybody is that lucky. <laughs> And I suppose a lot of people would just end up having to say goodbye to their family for six weeks, two months, three months, however long the field work is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've done that in the past when I had to leave for, you know, a week or two to do a little bit of work on site. Um, but because this was a longer period, because this was six weeks long, um, my husband and I discussed it and said, you know, we're going to we're going to try to make this work this year. So just before we leave, for anybody who is really interested in the field, maybe they're just finishing high school or they're doing their first couple of years of university and are interested in getting uh, into this area, what kinds of resources or maybe books or maybe television shows or, or documentaries might you point someone at to learn a little bit more to find out if maybe this is something they'd really like to do? Oh, my gosh. Um, there are a lot of books, but they're mostly focused at, you know, the university level, like people who are in um, a class already, there aren't a lot of sort of popular science books um, on bioarchaeology, unfortunately. Um, there is the, you know, the Kathy Reich series about um, uh, forensic anthropology, um, but there really aren't uh, bioarch books on that. I am writing one, but I haven't finished writing it yet, so I can't pitch that. Um, but yeah, just um, talking to the, the people at the nearest college, um, there are a lot of archaeologists around. Um, um, and, you know, go go talk to them at the local university, whether you're enrolled or in high school. Um, find out if there are archaeological digs in the area. Um, I'm very lucky to be in Florida, where we have the Florida Public Archaeology Network um, that goes out into schools and um, that has all sorts of, you know, public talks and stuff. Um, so if that sort of thing is in their area, um, they could go look at that. Um, the Archaeological Institute of America has a bunch of uh, sections all over the, the U.S. Um, where, and Canada, um, where they have uh, lectures. And uh, yeah, so I would say just, just go out and talk to people, reach out by email. A lot of us are available by email um, and we'll answer questions <laughs> of um, up and coming researchers. Awesome. Christina, thank you so much for your time today. It's a really interesting topic and I've been reading your blog for a while. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Christina Kilgrove or her work, we have links to her blog powered by Osteons and her writing on Forbes to get you started. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People. 
Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.